is the opening notes from The Man Who Saved the World from Nirvana, their MTV, their groundbreaking unplugged performance on Greg Mackling. He's Brett McGarry. Hope you're having a great Wednesday. From the, you feel a lot older now than you did 30 seconds ago file. It was 23 <laughs> years ago today. The tragic loss, the news that Kurt Cobain had died, came across news wires around the world. I can't believe that it's been 23 years already. I remember first hearing about that and just the, I guess I felt sad for him. You know, I knew that he had dealt with issues of depression and addiction and, and being sort of thrust into a spotlight he didn't necessarily want, which happens to a lot of artists. But I think in the case of Nirvana, they they were sort of the, the rallying cry for a change in all of music. They, there was a tectonic shift in music when Nirvana hit it big. It, everything changed after that. Even when you were in the bars, a bar that played exclusively dance music, yep. they would throw some Nirvana on every once in a while just to appease the changing appetite for music that Nirvana clearly spearheaded. Not only did they change music, they changed fashion. Yep. They changed culture. They changed... They changed... <laughs> they changed <laughs> they, a ton they of They really stuff. did change fashion. I still remember not being for in the better. Yeah, well, Not for the better. All the girls wearing grubby clothes and... Ah, oh, terrible. And Seattle came of age. Yeah. You know, as a community, Seattle was an outpost. And I know that the tech industries have done a lot to grow Seattle's image over the last two or three decades. But let me tell you... A lot of America paying attention to Seattle came from the grunge, from the music scene. It, Ironically, it put Seattle on the map in a lot of ways. So 23 years ago today, Kurt Cobain died. It was, uh, it was it, you know, it was sad. And it, it just, it's also kind of, I really can't believe that it's been 23 years. There are certain events that, that I guess always feel fresh. Sure. And the fact that it's been over two decades, you're right, it does make me feel a little bit older, but but the, the shock of that moment of learning his death, I think, will always be one of those things that kind of stays with me. And not because I, was, I wasn't even a huge Nirvana fan, but I think just as a fan of music in general of that time, particularly grunge rock and the, the hard rock that came out of the early to mid-90s, as Kurt Cobain was, whether he wanted it or not, was the poster child. So, And, of course, uh, Dave Grohl... <laughs> Had the leader of the Foo Fighters, was the drummer of Nirvana uh, for those years. And he quite seriously considered never playing music again after Kurt Cobain died, after he killed himself. Let's call it what it was. It was a suicide. And in the Sonic Highways uh, episode about Seattle, Grohl talks about going through Ireland and seeing on the side of a road someone walking with a Nirvana t-shirt on. And it wasn't really until then that it struck him how much influence Nirvana and their music had had, not only in Seattle and America, North America, but around the world. And that single incident, according to Dave Grohl, inspired him to get back in the studio and to start making music again. Really? So it would have been obviously a, a huge tragedy had, uh, in my mind, 
a huge tragedy had uh, Kurt Cobain not only uh, taken his own life, the end of Nirvana, and if the Foo Fighters had, had never uh, come to life, uh, that would have been a musical tragedy as well. Foo Fighters, you're a much bigger fan of that band than I am. You would probably know this. Their first album, at the very least their first album, was that not recorded entirely by Dave Grohl? Their first songs, yes. He started recording songs all by himself, all the different musical instruments, all on his own. In fact, when he was in Nirvana, and he would talk about how he would never show any of that stuff to Kurt because he was in awe of Kurt's professionalism, his musicality, his ability to write lyrics, to write music. So Dave Grohl was very much, uh, shall we say, uh, modest in terms of his musical abilities. He he was blown away by Kurt Cobain and his abilities to the point where he kind of kept his his own songwriting abilities to himself till much later. Oh, okay. But so that was, I guess, something that, that the, that's how the Foo Fighters sort of started. And I, I would imagine over time he stopped recording everything or yes okay all yes, right yes sorry yes. to put you on the spot no, that's okay Fighters knowledge. that's okay <laughs> i'm just just settling a personal curiosity of mine so that's the the kurt cobain stuff we wanted to also talk about something else that's some other stuff that is going on uh well it, there is a musical tie-in as well this is a song by Skip Marley. It's called Lions. He is the grandson of Bob Marley. This song was used in an ad being described as offensive is an understatement for by many. It's a Pepsi ad which is receiving major backlash and the headline today is Pepsi pulls controversial Kendall Jenner ad after Twitter backlash. Pepsi is pulling the widely criticized ad for appearing to trivialize protests for social justice causes. Quote, Pepsi was trying to protect, project a global message of unity, peace, and understanding. Clearly, we missed the mark, and we apologize. This from Pepsi. And PepsiCo had previously said that the ad would be seen globally across TV and digital platforms. Critics say the image of Jenner Handing a police officer a Pepsi evoked a photo of Black Lives Matter protester Leisha Evans approaching an officer at a demonstration in Baton Rouge last year. So I have seen the ad. I, I didn't want to watch it at first when I saw how long it was. It's a two and a half minute. You can barely call that a commercial. It's a featurette. Yeah, it's, it's more like a movie trailer. It's the length of a Tristan Field Jones audio documentary, supposedly. <laughs> a little bit of an inside joke there, taking a shot <laughs> at our colleague Tristan Field Jones, who's been promising us a, promising us a documentary for about uh, six months, it feels like. Anyway, we, we digress. <laughs> Even on the air, he can't escape our That's chicanery. Correct. That is correct. Yeah, so this ad, it's it it starts with Kendall Jenner. She's doing a photo shoot, and she's wearing a blonde wig and wearing a shiny silver dress. And she's noticing that there are people walking by. There's some sort of a, a peaceful protest. They're, hold, they're all holding generic signs that say conversation and other assorted things that, that aren't really directing a direct uh, uh, specific message. And then eventually she joins the protest and walks out and hands this police officer a can of Pepsi to which he cracks open and smiles and everybody's happy. Pepsi saved the world. 
Live for Now Moments is the title of the video. They don't even call it a, a commercial. They call it a video. And as it was debuting on commercial television, Twitter lit up last night, and a lot of people were calling it the best commercial for Coca-Cola ever. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that that's how bad it was received uh, public by the public at large was there didn't seem to be any value anything in the commercial that would encourage anybody to drink Pepsi. Yeah. And that's really what it's supposed to do and I understand there have been some abstract attempts at Television commercials that have you thinking about life, have you thinking about things other than the product in a way to make a human connection, to humanize things. Uh, everything, you know, the, the first Apple commercial and the Nike commercials. And I mean, the list goes on and on of how they've tried to change the narrative on how you deliver a message by taking focus away from the product. Um I don't know. I, this one obviously fell flat on its face. It's already been pulled. Well, and there, then the ad, it, it, it features a diverse cast. There is one, there's a shot of a Muslim woman, for example, taking pictures of the event. Uh, there are people of all different races, all different colors participating in this protest. And the there's a scene which I... I will say that I I don't know that I am particularly offended by this ad in general or by its concept, but there is one scene where Kendall Jenner takes off her blonde wig and then fiercely walks out to the protest. And as she's taking off her wig, she hands it to a black woman who just kind of who looks startled to be, oh, you're giving you're giving me this. Okay, thanks. So someone astutely pointed out if you're trying to sort of mimic the Black Lives Matter movement maybe don't have this white girl give of the black woman right the wig it, it was just it was a funny scene when you see the video i didn't notice it the first time i watched it but now it's i it's can't been, well, it's i can't been, help but it's watch been isolated it. right uh, in freeze frame and it's been tweeted out and the other thing i guess that i just don't understand is it felt as though during production when they're writing this thing, it's like they had a checklist of groups that they had to have included in this commercial. Mm -hmm. You know, a Muslim woman with headscarf, check. A police <laughs> officer with uh, with calm German shepherd dog, uh, check. And just the, the different types of protesters and just making sure that it was just right. Uh, you know, you can you can overdo the production. Sometimes mm -hmm. to a point where it's plain and simply not believable. If you're trying to make something look realistic, you have every opportunity if you try too hard to make it really a caricature of itself. I think the best thing that came out of this ad for me was learning of this song, Lions, by Skip Marley, which I had never heard. It's actually a pretty cool song. Good song. So I think I might add that to my playlists. <laughs> so I like that, but... I'm not offended. You know, people are saying it's offended, offensive and there, there's a huge backlash. I don't think I'm offended. And I'm actually offended at the, the social justice warrior movement and how they get. There's almost a Twitter backlash for, for virtually and sure. anything has a sure. Twitter backlash of some sort. That offends me. But I think it's just sort of, you know, I, I guess like you said, it's, oh, look, a company's trying to pretend that they care about things. That doesn't offend me. That's just, I'm so used to that. I mean, Coke 
They're, you, you mentioned it's a great ad for Coke. They've been doing this kind of thing forever. Pepsi has been doing this forever. You remember in the early 1990s, Crystal, was it Clear Pepsi? Pepsi Clear? Pepsi Clear with uh, Van Halen was right now. Yeah, they were saying that this is the moment, and that was a song that, if memory serves, Van Halen was was applauded for. Hey, look at your... your... Oh, it was the height of their popularity. The Right Now video with all the different sayings going across the screen was kind of... It was it was the first... Uh, it, they were memes before there were memes. Yeah. And so it was a collection of random thoughts about doing better for others and thinking about the world in a different perspective. And so, you know, Sammy Hagar, uh, in retrospect, says, you know, uh, we were criticized for lending our voice to that and allowing... Uh, Pepsi to use our song and our voice. And then he pointed out for any amount of money, that song is available <laughs> to be recorded with or without our permission by somebody else. And we thought if anybody's going to sing the song and anybody's going to be represent right now, it's going to be us to their detriment, I suppose. But they didn't want their song taken and recorded by somebody else. And even and then that point, I think they, there was a bit of a backlash against that. So there's always there have always been companies trying to make a buck yes. off of social movements, hundred percent. And there has always been backlash. I guess now it's just more amplified because everybody has access to Twitter and everybody can get on their high horse. It's so easy for people to get on their high horse, and I think that's what bothered me about this the most is the the rush to show the world how outraged we are. Yeah, it doesn't didn't bother me. It was just to me just a bad commercial. And I think it just highlights the fact that things that have to go up the ladder in terms of decision makers and get rubber stamped, all the smart people, the, all the purportedly smart people who make a ton of money that had to say yes to this com- that to, to this concept are now eating crow today without question, right? Oh, uh, that and that you could that happens in so many whether it's uh, television or just. In companies where where marketing offices come up with, oh, the, you know, the, here's a great idea, and then it gets translated down to the front line, and the front line workers have to deal with this, and they say, what? That is what we have to do? And, it, of course, it doesn't work. So. How long before the advertising company or Pepsi tells us who con- whose concept this was, whose idea oh, it was, the way, the way the accounting firm threw the individual under the bus at the... The Academy Oscar. Awards, right? Is, yeah, this is the dude. This is him right here. This is the guy. He's getting fired. Throwing him right under the bus. Uh, it is 119 on 680 CJOB. Your forecast is coming up next. I hope we're done with the daytime temperatures that include a minus sign in front of it. I, ho- I hope that's the end of it. Yeah, although there are still some minuses ahead of us, but not for the daytime highs where the, the long term, at least for next week, we're looking at uh, potentially highs around 7, 6 with lows around minus 4 to minus 8. Are you looking at Environment Canada there? Is that what you're looking yeah, at? Yeah, I'm looking at the Environment Canada long-term forecast. So it looks like we're not completely out of the woods just yet in terms of cold, but that's not entirely awful. Uh, the normals for this time of year are a low minus four and a high of seven. So that's, that's okay for April. What are they talking about for Saturday? I've got one model here showing me 18 degrees on Saturday. Uh, Environment Canada says high 16 with a very good chance of showers. Cloudy with 70%. But again, that's still a few days out. It's hard to really sort of throw money down on the forecast beyond two or three days to say that this is going to happen. So I won't put money on the fact we're going to get snow on Monday, according to the 
little weather app on my iPhone. It's got a snowflake next to Monday. <laughs> well, and there's Tristan a Field, Tristan Field Jones and I have been watching some of the different weather models. There's Tristan sneaking into our show again. He's like Costanza. Once you <laughs> he, once he gets in, can't get out. Uh, that are uh, showing some potentially some some big snowfall on Monday next week. Uh, you know, several centimeters. So we'll keep an eye on that, keep it locked here. And, of course, today is the 20th anniversary of the blizzard that was responsible in great part for the flood of the century. We've been sharing remembrances all day. And, uh, Brett, I know you had an incredible experience. You had a, a house guest that you figured might be there for a few hours, and it turned into a few days, didn't it? It did. We uh, So I worked at Taco Bell at the time, the one on Regent Avenue at 1536 Regent, which is now a credit union. And we Do you have a sponsorship deal with that credit no, union, no, by just, the way? No, I'm just sitting at the table oh, okay. so you know. Okay, I just wanted might, to know. Because you might not know that it's, uh, I don't I don't know what branch of credit union okay. it is. Okay, but, uh, it maybe we can work on about. that for you. I don't, I, I am lamenting the fact that it is no longer a Taco Bell. Oh, fair enough. I went there for my last supper on the day it was closing, so yeah. But uh, we worked at Taco Bell and... I had gotten off earlier that day. I worked that day. I think I went was done by mid-afternoon. He was set to close the restaurant. They closed it early. He called me at around 8 o'clock. This is my friend Steve. He called me around 8 o'clock and said, I don't think I'm going to make it home to East St. Paul. Can I come to your place or try to get to your place? So he made it to my place, Couldn't, but he ended up parking at his car a few blocks away because that's about as far as he could get by that point because so much snow had fallen. And he ended up staying in my house for like three days because he was boxed in. The plows hadn't come down. His parents <laughs> were phoning. Why are you still there? The streets are clean here because the plows had been through East St. Paul and cleared everything away. Well, of course they hadn't come to the residential areas yet Right in Winnipeg. They had bigger fish to fry. So we finally were able to get him out after the plows came down and did the the, commuter, the collector streets. But yeah, he was there for three days, and it was quite an adventure. 1997 was, of course, the flood of the century here in the Red River Valley. 2011 was the flood of this century for the folks in and around Lake Manitoba, on the shores of Lake Manitoba, its tributaries, the Assiniboine River, Assiniboine River Diversion. The diversion went into work. It was opened Late last week, we'll visit with Scott Forbes from the University of Winnipeg, who is a little bit of an expert on the water levels at Lake Manitoba, and we'll discuss that with him when we come back along with your remembrances of the flood of the century, 1997. It all started today with the blizzard, April 5th, 1997. 1.34. Happy Wednesday. Are we celebrating the blizzard that was responsible? No, we're remembering, remembering, commemorating, trying to re- combine two words there, as I'm apt to do from time to time. Yeah, I think celebrating would be... Not it's, the right word. Yeah, because for some, it was simply uh, a winter event, but for others, it was a disastrous event. That's right. It was the beginning of uh, the, the flood of the century, is what they call it. Well, 2011 was the flood of the century on... Lake Manitoba for this century, and we're joined now by Scott Forms, the Department of uh, Biology at the University of Winnipeg. He's an ecologist there. Uh, Professor Forbes, thanks for taking some time with us today. I noticed the tweet from Sandy Knight, a picture of the uh, Cinnaboyne River diversion, which connects the Cinnaboyne River 
to the south basin of Lake Manitoba, and the diversion is overflowing already. Is this a concern? Um, yes and no. It's the, uh, the water which showed up in the diversion, which was open last Friday, went up very quickly, especially yesterday, and it's not clear why. Uh, the uh, the gauges upstream weren't indicating that there was that much water in the system. And then all of a sudden, last night, um, the uh, the diversion was flowing at, uh, if the gauges on the diversion are correct, at its former design capacity, which is 25,000 cubic feet per second, which is a lot of water. And if that's if that's indeed the case, then, um, yeah, there's, there's a, a, a bit of a concern. Um, I'm just sort of setting my personal DEFCON level, which was sitting at four. I'm going to upgrade it now to about a three. Oh, that's comforting. That's good to know. Maybe you can uh, provide some history. I know you're more of a biology, ecology kind of guy, but give us some history in terms of what happened in 2011 and what led to this uh, massive flood in and around uh, the Lake Lake Manitoba South Basin. Well, there, there were two things which happened. One, there was um, a, a massive flow on the Assiniboine system. It, it reached record levels of over 50,000 cubic feet per second at Portage-La Prairie. And on the other end of the lake, um, there were very high inflows. The natural inflow to Lake Manitoba is the Waterhand River. And it was also at, um, at very, very high levels. Uh, and in, in the year 2011, two-thirds of the water came in from Lake Winnipegosis via the Waterhand. But during the summer months, uh, that was added on to... Uh, by flows on the portage diversion, which which it was actually over its design capacity um, uh, some of the time. It was uh, it was designed to, to flow 25,000 cubic feet per second, and we hit 35,000 uh, in the in the spring of 2011 to uh, avoid uh, massive flooding downstream on the Assiniboine. The hoop and hauler um, uh, cut uh, was avoided because we could we could divert the water into Lake Manitoba, but it resulted in the most expensive flood in Manitoba's history, um, at, at least twice as expensive, probably four times as expensive as the 1997 flood, uh, and um, even more expensive in inflation-adjusted dollars than the 1950 Winnipeg flood. The damage on Lake Manitoba in the Assiniboine, Lake St. Martin, and, and all the surrounding area was well over a billion dollars and probably over two billion. We don't have a full accounting of all the costs, and the costs are still rising today. We've still got a couple of thousand people from the Lake St. Martin First Nation who are still not home yet uh, in 2017. So what is the the benefit, I suppose, then of using the diversion? Or maybe the question is, what would happen if the diversion was not used? If it wasn't used, we'd have had a massive flood between um, Portage-La Prairie and Headingley. Um, Winnipeg would have been fine. Um, the, uh, the the modelers suggest that uh, Winnipeg would have been protected by its dike system, but everything else, the, the flood would have covered something like 600 square kilometers, uh, would have devastated all uh, the communities in between, all the farming operations, uh, and there was substantial damage anyway. Um, the uh, the Assiniboine, uh, it, it technically stayed in its banks, but, but it was flowing right at, at, at bank capacity, and when that happens, a whole bunch of water um, leaks through the dikes into surrounding areas, and so um, the, uh, the the dike system um, uh, is a bit leaky. Uh, but we averted much larger damage downstream um, uh, on the Assiniboine. It would have been more expensive uh, had uh, had the water um, been allowed to go east. So one more piece of historical data, if you've got it at your fingertips, uh, Scott, and this is the uh, water level at its peak of uh, Lake Manitoba. 
Um, the water in, in 2011 got to the highest recorded level um, uh, in the uh, since the, the turn of the last century. Um, it might have been slightly higher in 1882, but uh, the, in July of, of 2011, it reached um, 817.2 feet. Uh, there was a major flood for three years in the mid-1950s. Uh, and the flood of 2011 was a foot higher than what happened in the mid-1950s. Um, the current lake level is uh, 812.65 feet, which is, um, you know, uh, well below um, its 2011 level and below its flood level of, level of 814 feet. So that's obviously a, a little bit more, uh, a lot more room to play with, right? There's, there's, uh, what would you say in terms of lake rise? What have we got to play with there? We don't clearly want to get to 817. What, where, where, what is the comfortable level at the lake to minimize damage to property? Do we know what the magic number is? Um, well, it, it just rises as the lake rises. So the desirable lake level is between 810.5 and 812.5 feet. We're above that right now. Um, and once we start getting above 813 feet, then we start to see increasing property damage, um, especially because of, of um, lake surges associated with, with windstorms uh, and the, the flood of most of the damage in the flood of 2011 occurred well before the peak lake level. It occurred when the lake was um, 815.4 feet on the 31st of May and a very strong um, storm system, um, which generated sustained winds of 70 kilometers an hour caused the lake to rise five feet in an afternoon, and that uh, caused basically a billion dollars damage. So as uh, folks in Winnipeg were celebrating the return of the Winnipeg Jets of the National Hockey League, uh, there were folks on the shores of Lake Manitoba who were dealing with their own flood of the century. So I know, you know, you're not necessarily going to predict anything, but how comfortable do you feel that we can avert a crisis on Lake Manitoba? And what do we have to be aware of? What would be the signals that we might be headed into a situation where we're looking at a flood on Lake Manitoba again? Well, if we stay um, with the weather as it is right now, we'll be just fine. Um, if it stays dry um, uh, for the next month, um, we'll be in excellent shape. Uh, uh, at the opposite end, uh, worst case scenario, if 10 days from now, uh, we got a major rainstorm, a Colorado low, which came through slow moving, dropped a lot of rain, like uh, what happened in 2014, all hell would break loose. Um, uh, that would be coinciding with the peak flows on the Assiniboine River, um, which are going to be somewhere, you know, um, upwards of 30,000 cubic feet per second, maybe more than that. Um, and if we had a if we had a major rain system between the 10th and 20th of April, we'd be in big trouble. So we know that uh, that the the peak and the uh, what what do we call it the uh, crest the crest of the Red River. Thank you, Brett. Has happened here in Winnipeg. Are we really 10 days away from that at the Portage Diversion? Um, that's that's what uh, the Ministry of Infrastructure is forecasting, and, and they do a very good job. Uh, MI um, provides daily updates, and uh, they have excellent um, flood forecasters. Um, I rely on their numbers, and um, uh, they're telling us that uh, we're going to see uh, the the uh, peak flows at the Portage Diversion in about 10 days, 9, 10 days, uh, maybe 14, somewhere in that window. Uh, and um, it's not exactly uh, clear how high the, the river is going to get. Things are going up very quickly. The, uh, the snow melt has been much quicker than anybody anticipated. This is really early and really fast, and that's a little bit um, disturbing. 
Scott, this is something that we deal with every single year in March, April, May is the topic of flooding in southern Manitoba. Is this something that we're basically going to have to live with forever or is like what would it take to to be able to prevent this? Um, well, some things you can't prevent. Um, some some system or some events are so extreme. What happened in 2011 um, hydrologists at the University of Manitoba have, have now had a chance to analyze the numbers, and they've suggested that might have been the most extreme flood in Canada's history. Um, the, uh, the, the rise of the Assiniboine River was so high and so prolonged, it was actually um, record-setting. Uh, and, and there's not much you can do to prepare for that. Um, what you can do over the long run, we've, we've lost a lot of our upstream wetlands. Wetlands are, are giant um, sponges. Uh, and we've drained the majority of them on the Canadian prairies. And if we had intact our original wetlands, we would have had a much um, lesser flood in 2011, yeah, also in 2014. The same holds true in the Red River. Um, the, uh, the same holds true. The, uh, one of the worst flooded areas is, is right now the Pegasus First Nation and the Fisher River um, Cree Nation, which are flooded out year after year on the, uh, um, on the Fisher River. Uh, and part of that is due to the loss of, of wetlands. Um, and that would be one major step we could take, something you could do year by year, incrementally, by restoring some of those. That would really help. Um, we need some flood engineering um, uh, as well. Um, they're working on it on Lake Manitoba, constructing an, a new outlet channel to, to prevent floods like 2011 and what we ran into 2012 and 2014. Um, so, yeah, there are things we can do, um, but there are some things you just can't protect against. Fisher River, for those that are unfamiliar, Professor? Uh, Fisher River is in the Interlake region, north of Winnipeg, uh, a couple of hours. And um, those poor guys suffer flooding almost every year. Um, and uh, uh, I think some of the people from Pegos First Nation might be heading back home, but there's still a bunch evacuated right now in Winnipeg hotels. That happened very quickly uh, with ice jamming on the Fisher River um, last week. And, uh, um, and you know, really, we've got to be able to do something about that. That happens almost every year. Well, we're still learning. 1950, the big flood that really made us realize as a community that we needed to do something. We need to do some engineering. 1997, we raised and and widened the Winnipeg, the Red River floodway. And now here we are realizing that there are other parts of the province where we need to invest in major flood protection. Yep, exactly. You're, You're exactly right. Thank you, Professor Forbes. Always great to catch up with you. My pleasure. That is Scott Forbes, professor of biology at the University of Winnipeg, talking about potential for more problems on the Assiniboine and Lake Manitoba. Just because of the crest? Why do words just slip away from your brain so quickly and so easily? <laughs> the crest of the Red River came through overnight, uh, but things on the Assiniboine River 10 days away, according to our friend Professor Forbes, uh, for the crest at the Portage diversion, diversion, which is essentially running at capacity as we speak. 146, your memories of the flood of the century, whether it's 2011 or 1997, send us a text, give us a call, 204-780-6868. 151. Hope you're having a fantastic afternoon wherever you are, however you may be tuning in. We appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Perhaps today's your Friday. You made it to your weekend. Thanks for everybody in the public service, frontline workers, retail workers, those that work shift work, so that when we have a day off, we can keep things normal 
in our lives. We appreciate those that work the unusual hours. Cheers to you. We were talking about problems on the Assiniboine River, the potential for flooding on the Assiniboine River in Lake Manitoba with Scott Forbes, professor of biology at the University of Winnipeg. And during that conversation, we received the latest flood bulletin from the province, and it indeed highlights concerns on the Assiniboine. Uh, Brandon police have put out a warning about the water levels there, and there is possibility of flooding in the next few days. The flood watch remains in effect from Portage to Headingley, and part of the issue is that the Portage diversion could reach capacity. So that is something that we will have to keep an eye on as well. We also received a note uh, just in the last half hour from the Canadian Red Cross, which is now providing support to four Manitoba First Nations in response to flooding. 20 residents of the Kanupawakpa Dakota First Nation in southwestern Manitoba were evacuated from their homes today due to flooding. Red Cross is providing lodging and food for the evacuees at a hotel in Brandon. The other First Nations that are being supported by the Red Cross, Peguis First Nation, 161 evacuees currently in Winnipeg hotels. Sioux Valley Dakota Nation with 25 evacuees who returned home yesterday, but an an additional five individuals were evacuated yesterday. They're currently in a Brandon hotel. And Long Plain First Nation has 62 evacuees in a hotel in Portage La Prairie. And the Red Cross has also reached out to impacted municipalities. Uh, For example, uh, a whole bunch of supplies were sent to Carmen at the community's request. Of course, they were hit hard by the Boyne River, so... It's a it's an annual tradition in this province. Uh, I hate it. The f- flooding. It's- I I hate it too. And it, it's ironic when you hear. In my mind, it's ironic when you hear that some of the things, some of the best things we could do is kind of put things back the way they were, in terms of marshes and wetlands. They're a natural filter. We saw that in New Orleans when they had uh, the massive hurricane Katrina there. That. In past, the storm surge would be handled by these marshes that were, you know, out further uh, from from New Orleans. It would protect them, but of course, they'd been drained and used for other things. And we didn't understand maybe at the time when we were destroying these natural habitats, uh, what the uh, effect could be for human beings. And uh, here we are in 2017. We're 67 years removed from the 1950 flood, and just down the hallway here. In our from our studio, there's a picture of Jack Blick keeping CJOB on the air with all the transmitter equipment, everything up on the roof because CJOB at the time was flooded the main building, but CJOB had to stay on the air, and that was the only way that they could do it. So when you imagine that we're still here, we can't control Mother Nature. There's only so many things we can do, but letting Mother Nature do her job might be a good idea. Yeah, when you're listening to Scott talk about these marshlands that could protect the Fisher River from flooding, for example, uh, that's it's sad to hear that that these things that we've done have inadvertently created many of these problems. So if they can, if there's a way to somehow resurrect those natural habitats that could act as flood protection in the future, then I think that that's something that needs to be invested in immediately. And is it hard to imagine that Duff Roblin, legend has it, you know, was essentially told that he was out of his mind to believe that he could build 
or that an idea like the Red River Floodway could actually work and that Winnipeg should invest at the time, you know, I think it was $50 million, which was a ton of money back then, mm-hmm. uh, to build this flood control structure to protect the city of Winnipeg. It's uh, incredible how these events change your perception and you look back and you go, well, yeah, how did anybody give him a hard time about that? Yeah. Of course, of course it was a great idea. Eh, he sounded like he was off his nut is what he did to mm. a lot of people when he first came with this proposal. And it was a hard fight to get the money to do it, to build this thing that has saved Winnipeg billions and billions of dollars over the decades. Coming up to 156 on 680 CJOB. After Global News, we are going to, well, at 2.30, we are going to look at something called Secrets of Survival. It's a new documentary that is debuting on the weekend, on the eve of Passover. Uh, But prior to that, at 2 o'clock, the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra teaming up, joining forces with Rainbow Stage to present South Pacific this upcoming weekend, and we will speak on that after the news on 680 CJOB. Brett McGarry with Greg Mackling on 680 CJOB. That is music from... You know what that's from, Greg? It's got to be South Pacific. Well, you don't have to look so dramatic about it. Things like this happen every day. I'm gonna wash that man right out of my hair. I'm gonna wash that man right out of my hair. I'm gonna wash that man right out of my hair and send him on his way. Get the picture? I'm gonna wave that man right out of my arms. I'm gonna wave that man right out of my arms. I'm gonna wave that man right out of my arms and send him on his way. I think that's one of those songs that everybody recognizes, but maybe doesn't know where it came from originally. That comes from the motion picture depiction of South Pacific, I think it was 1953. Eight. 58, oh, that's the same shape. Beautiful color, though. <laughs> Absolutely gorgeous. I should write that kind of stuff down. I was going off my memory. Uh, he's Brett. I'm Greg, as mentioned. And in the studio, we have Ray Hogg, artistic director of Rainbow Stage, and Donna Fletcher. She is the director of South Pacific, a joint production of the WSO and Rainbow Stage. Welcome, guests. Thank, Thank you, you for coming much. and visiting us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. So the show is happening this weekend at the concert hall with the the symphony orchestra. And let's start with that because it's my understanding that it's it's uncommon to have a, a full orchestra. So uh, Ray, why don't we start with you on that front? Yeah. How, what is that? Is that, is that exciting? Very exciting. Um, so the the WSO and Rainbow Stage first got together and we were cooking up ideas uh, when we presented West Side Story uh, a couple years ago at Rainbow Stage in Kildonan Park. And uh, the WSO actually provided the orchestra for that. So we had 20 players in our orchestra pit when we were sort of cramming them in with, you know, crowbars. Our, our pit is not really designed for that many players, but we fit them all in and it was quite the puzzle. And we realized that there was a lot of um, really simpatico in terms of our approach to music and our sort of reverence for live musicians and our, our appreciation of live musicians. And so we, JF at the, at the symphony and myself, kept looking for opportunities to work together on something else. We just didn't know what shape that something else would take. We landed on the idea of a concert together. They, of course, in their pop series, the Air Canada pop series at WSO, are constantly looking for new and innovative ways to bring uh, large-scale music to their audience. Um, in a in a popular form, not necessarily classical. And so we arrived at doing South Pacific together, 
uh, in concert with the full symphony. Usually on Broadway, I'd say a Broadway orchestra is usually about, like a huge one would be 30 musicians. Mm-hmm. It's probably what this was written for. Um, and nowadays, a huge one would be maybe 12 musicians. Like they've, oh, wow. they've just really dwindled. They've gotten smaller and smaller as time has gone by. So it's a real treat for us, uh, for our, our artists to be um, performing the music even like bigger than it was written, which is going to be amazing to have that many strings and, and, and you know, the whole orchestra behind us. Um, but also for the symphony to have the treat of being with a full cast of actors. So we have 24 actors on stage plus a 40-member choir. <laughs> so there's like a huge amount of voices participating um, and a huge amount of, of symphonic players. So it's really, really unique um, experience, I think, that we're all heading for. So we were talking off the air, Don, about this idea of the institution that is Rainbow Stage. And, of course, it's an incredible theater, just the setting in Kildonan Park and the beautiful dome and everything. And I think all of us have at least one memory of spending some time seeing some performance at Rainbow Stage. How great to bring it year-round, essentially, and to have a performance at the Centennial Concert Hall. This is great. It's pretty exciting. Um, I've been a, a rainbow stage goer since I was three years old, where I think I saw King and I uh, with the wonderful Winnipeg actress Evelyn Anderson playing the lead. And that was the beginning of my love affair with Rainbow Stage. And so getting a chance to work with the symphony, who I've also worked with, and bring the two together is just incredible. And for, for the symphonic audiences to get to see the best of what Rainbow does in the summer, and then for the Rainbow audiences to get to have the huge symphony behind them will be wonderful. And it's bringing these two iconic institutions together to create this amazing, amazing, iconic piece of art. These cross promotions, Brett and I have been commenting uh, for months now, the idea of doing these unique sort of productions in order to bring in lovers of one form of the artistic community, bring them in and get a little bit of a sneak peek. Maybe it's the symphony lovers to come in and get a sneak peek of what they do at Rainbow Stage and and vice versa. I, to me, it's brilliant marketing. Mm-hmm. Well, not only that, it's, it's a great way for Winnipeg audiences to see the best of this young talent that's coming up because we have a wonderful cast of young, talented Winnipeggers in the show. And so it's a great uh, venue for them to get to perform in and also a great way for them to hone their talents and to bring that next generation of performers to our audiences. Donna, can you maybe tell us, for those who are not familiar with South Pacific, Mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about what that production is about? Well, South Pacific is a a musical based on the James Michener novel, Tales of the South Pacific. And James Michener, the very famous novelist, served during the war in the South Pacific and actually saw a lot of these stories that he fashioned into this book. And then Rogers and Hammerstein were looking for another... uh, another thing to produce. They had all these successes and they were sort of riding on that success. And then someone suggested they look at these novels. And uh, a couple of the stories really stood out to them. The one about Nellie Forbush and another one about a, a Tonkinese woman uh, named Bloody Mary who who sells things to all the, the soldiers. And they sort of looked at those and it really captured their imagination. And um, Oscar Hammerstein already had a, a history of being involved in progressive shows like Showboat, which was one of the first uh, shows that have a, a racially mixed cast. And so he loved the idea of the stories and that they talked about racism, especially in post-World War II United States. And it just caught their imaginations, and that's where the story comes from. And they fashioned it into this uh, fabulous piece, which has these two parallel love stories going on, the one with Nelly and the French plantation owner, Um, uh, uh, Emile Debec and then Joe Cable and the young Tonkinese girl Liat 
And and as the two stories sort of parallel, uh, they both have to face their inherent racism. Nellie, much to her shock, and Joe knowing it's there and and then making the decision about whether he's going to live that life or whether he's going to throw away that racism and embrace the love that is offered to him. So, Ray, this story was groundbreaking in a lot of Mm -hmm. respects because of the depiction of this interracial couple. And never mind that they were involved with one another. They had kids. My goodness gracious. Yeah, there's all kinds of, you know, when you you give yourself the context of the time when this piece was written, you you think absolutely interracial couples were still a big deal. Um, It was illegal. It was illegal in very many places. Uh, I myself, my parents were not the same skin color. So, you know, whatever. To me, it's. In my own experience, that's a, yeah. a moot point, whatever. That was has been my life, but I know for, for many people that that was, and in some cases still is shocking. Uh, there's also the notion of premarital sex that's mm-hmm. not really overtly talked about in the show, but uh, there's definitely the suggestion that that, that that has happened in Nellie's life and in, in Emil's life in some way. He's had previous marriages and, and romances and children by a non-white woman. Uh, there's also the suggestion that Liot and Cable also, Joseph Cable, have uh, some premarital sex. So there's there's a lot of, you know, when you, when you read it or when you come see the show, no, I don't think a contemporary audience is like, oh my goodness, this is shocking that we're seeing this on stage. I can't believe it. Um, but uh, at the time, for sure. And then if we talk about the song, You've Got to Be Carefully Taught, which directly mm-hmm. addresses how racism is propagated and, and how how... Uh, racist or, or or bigoted or or, or you know, prejudicial ideas um, are passed down. You know, you've got to be taught to, to be afraid be of afraid. people whose eyes are oddly made and people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught. Like, you can't get more explicit than that mm-hmm. in a description of why are people prejudiced? Why do people have racism? Where does it come from? It comes from your parents, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, think of that in the 50s, right after the war on the New York Broadway stage, a singer saying to probably a largely white audience, hey, you know, if you've got if you've got negative feelings towards somebody, your parents taught you that, and you're probably teaching that to your kids. So, check and, yourself. And it's you amazing because you know I got this offer quite a while ago, and it was just before the election cycle in the states mm-hmm. got really heated. And I just kept thinking how relevant this is for our time right now that we're living in this time of walls and and bans on travel. And 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 I saw a production of it down in the states this summer, and it was really interesting to see these Americans confronted by this show that is actually saying to them what was being pre- preached politically at the moment. So it's it's an incredibly relevant show, especially in our times right now. We're going to continue our conversation in a moment with Donna Fletcher, who is the director of the upcoming production of South Pacific, which is happening at the Centennial Concert Hall this weekend, a team up between Rainbow Stage and the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. And our other guest in studio is Ray Hogg, who is the artistic director of Rainbow Stage. Your forecast is coming up next. It's Brett McGarry with Greg Mackling. We are talking about South Pacific happening this weekend at the Centennial Concert Hall. It's a joint production between the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra and Rainbow Stage. You can save 8% this week by purchasing online with the promo code PARADISE at wso.ca south slash south pacific and i just wanted to play one more clip from the the film version from 1958 because i want to ask our guests about it you might not rec- like i didn't when i was watching the the clip i didn't recognize the guy but i certainly recognized the voice there is absolutely nothing like the frame of a- 
That's a clip from Nothing Like a Dame, and that's from the film and the voice of Thurl Ravenscroft, who was Tony the Tiger. Oh, wow. <laughs> Amazing. And, and also and, the, he, uh, the Grinch. Yes. Yeah. The Grinch. He sang, well you're a mean one, Mr. Mm-hmm. Grinch. Do you have anybody who can sing that deep? Oh, yeah. your cast? Oh, John, yeah. A young man named John Anderson from the Faculty of Music at University of Manitoba. Yeah, we've, right. been, we've been keeping our eye on John for many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, he first, we, so in the spring, we offer a thing called Spring Training at Rainbow Stage where we give, we, we literally give away free training to uh, Manitoba-based artists, form of dance classes. Sometimes they're acting classes. Sometimes they are uh, singing classes. And so John started showing up at the dance classes and uh, let it be known that he was interested in apprenticing as a music director. So we gave him an apprenticeship. Uh, he's quite an accomplished musician as well. And he's also a fantastic singer with a big, booming, bassy voice. voice. <laughs> so nice. It's pretty uh, weird. We all like the moment where that, where that solo he's line comes in. He's a big, tall in, so. guy, too, yeah, he's so like it's pretty fun. Something. Yeah, look lanky. And, yeah. So our guest, by the way, Ray Hogg is the artistic director of Rainbow Stage and Donna Fletcher is the director of this upcoming production. And Greg, sorry, I just wanted to get that in before you posed your question. No, no, that's uh, more than okay. And I guess when we were talking about the times when South Pacific was originally written and produced and presented, it had me wondering about this whole idea of... Does art and literature represent the times? Does it set the tone? Can it be a predictor? What is the role of art and literature in your mind and pieces like South Pacific? Is it is it meant to be a, an awakening piece for, for, for America in this case? I think it was. I think it was sort of the Hamilton of its time. And Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote so many pieces that have become seminal in the musical theater repertoire. Like Oklahoma completely set the world on its on its head. And this was another piece that did. And uh, they really were very much wanting to be at the forefront of making art. They didn't want to just have chorus girls dancing and, you know, guys standing, singing away. They wanted to try to do shows that reflected the life as it was. And, you know, Oklahoma was one of those shows that was up uh, and running while the the men were shipping out from the States to go over to Europe, over to South Pacific. And they would often go and see it the night before they'd ship out of New York. And so that you, if you read any of the great history books, it talks, the actors talk about seeing all these sailors and soldiers up in the standing room watching the show with tears streaming down their faces because they were fighting for that girl. Mm-hmm. They were fighting for that Aunt Eller that was in well, the show. And for that for that ideal, right, yeah. in Oklahoma. Also, I just want to yeah. piggyback on what Donna said. Oklahoma also really created modern musical yeah. theater forms, right? Before then, it was, as Donna said, sort of, you know, girls in small costumes, tippy-tappy toes, and mm. there'd be no story. You know, a, a singer would come out and sing a couple of ditties, mm-hmm. uh, a contortion. Like, it was really like a, a like variety a show. Yeah, vaudeville right? review. With like a maybe a loose connecting thread to it, but no real story to speak of. And Oklahoma came along and completely turned the, the the art form on its head like they in the way that Hamilton this yeah. you know it, recent history has sort of cracked open musical theater once again Oklahoma created modern musical theater so just want to a get that out there and then yeah. say uh, South Pacific say yeah and but. South Pacific just takes it that step farther right. and the you know the commentary on the social times and and about what we have to look at and you know and yes they'd won the war but what were they left with and and that's what this was about and it was really interesting because when the tour went around um, through uh, the United States there were some houses down in the south that wouldn't show it to a, a racially mixed audience and so Rogers and Hammerstein pulled the show they said well then it, we won't let it play in your town. 
So that shows you that it did lead the times, right? Yeah. And I think, yeah. you know, to go back to your original question, so does art reflect, does it lead, or does it follow? I think the answer is a little bit of everything. everything mm-hmm. right? yeah. Sometimes there's a piece that comes on that, that really is just reflective. This is what's happening, and this is my response as an artist. I create something uh, that's inspired by this activity, action, mm-hmm. recent history. Other times it's somebody, you know, an artist who sits and, and reflects and ponders what is happening around me and how how can I contribute to possibly changing that. Uh, and then other times, you know, that third option, which was following the That's right. That's right. Well, you know, you can have a show like Lion King that cracked open musical theater in terms of technical, the technical side of things. And there were things you saw on the stage you'd never seen in a musical before from a technical side. Was the story or the music particularly thrilling? Not really, but just seeing the show, the spectacle. Or a show that's on Broadway right now, Come From Away, which is a Canadian-made musical, which is just a feel-good piece that's so simple, you know, with people playing multiple characters with a simple set, but it's such a beautiful story for this time because it's about people coming together and in the face of adversity, making something beautiful, you know? So it doesn't always have to be something that breaks boundaries. It can be something that just makes us sit back and realize the humanity of our lives. So. In terms of uh, technical, there I wanted to ask you, Donna, well, we have about two minutes left, uh, differences between symphony and theater. They're obviously two different art forms, and here they are coming together. So can you well, talk a little bit about that? We have we, we have basically a huge playing area in front of the symphony that we have some risers on, you know, to create sort of bleachers for the choir and to create, you know, sitting areas for our actors to sit on and play with. And then we have some very simple, you know, chairs and some benches, but it's, it's a concert version that's semi-staged, I guess, with mm-hmm. wonderful choreography uh, or Intense movement, staging. yeah, and and some wonderful movement that's been done by Ray and and staging by me, and uh, it's really about honing in on the story. So yes, you've got blocking, yes, you've got some dancing, yes, you've got everything, but we don't have the flies and everything. But but really, the story is strong enough that just what we're suggesting is enough that it'll be exciting. Wow. Yeah. Wow, I, I just uh, applaud all the arts groups coming together like this uh, to bring a, a unique experience because mm-hmm. I think it, for a lot of people, that's what takes them to maybe try it for the first time. You know, yeah. there's a little piece of something that I like. Yeah, maybe yeah. I'll maybe I'll go to my comfort zone here. For me, it feels like it feels like an event. Yeah, this is a this is sort of a, a live arts event, right? So it's not a play, it's not a concert, it's somewhere in between, and it, mm-hmm. it's it's just so different. What I find fascinating is is in the theater, the director is the head honcho, right? So mm-hmm. Donna would be our number one boss. At the symphony, the maestro is the number one boss. So we have a room full, and then I'm involved peripherally. As, and you're the you know, real number one boss. So there's an artistic director, a director, and a maestro in one room. But what's been amazing is that we really come together in such a, a, a brilliant collaborative way that, you know, I, I, I started teasing Julian Pelicano, who's who's maestro for this performance. Who we he, love, by the he's way. He's the greatest he's guy. Lovely. And he's, yeah. he's offering up staging advice. I'm like, oh, you're a choreographer <laughs> now. Go for it. And then I'm giving him conducting advice, you know, and Donna's giving us both advice. It's brilliant. And it's, yeah, it's so fun because he had, he said, yeah, you dropped your southern accent to the girl playing <laughs> Nellie Jillian. So it's just really, it's really quite lovely. It's a, it's a room full of very talented, very lovely people. Donna Fletcher is the director. Ray Hogg, artistic director of Rainbow Stage, talking about South Pacific happening this weekend at the Centennial Concert Hall. You can get tickets at wso.ca slash South Pacific. You can save 8% this week if you buy it online with the promo code PARADISE. Once again, it is a team-up of the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra and Rainbow Stage. Ray and Donna, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank Thank you you for having us. Global News at 2.30, up next. 2.33... 
Thursday or yeah, third Wednesday. Gee whiz, not going. One day, one week. One day I'll know what day of the week it is. Um, are we going to go to, uh, I want to go and see the South Pacific now. Yeah, it sounds great. Doesn't it though? Um, family secrets. They can be uh, devastating. They can affect the perception of your own history of where your family comes from, the roots of your family story, your family history. And for that reason, they can be devastating and Clearly, a, a secret can only become devastating once it's revealed. We're going to talk about a new documentary. It premieres on Sunday on the Documentary Channel. It's called Secrets of Survival. Two families, each closely guarding a secret from their child, or pardon me, from their children, that began in wartime over 70 years ago. Now those children embark on a determined journey to discover the truth. And we are joined. And Jeff, I'll just get you, I'll ask you to to bring our guests on because I often end up losing one of them when trying to bring up two at the same time. Right. Uh, one of our guests is in Tel Aviv at the moment. He is the filmmaker. His name is Martin Himmel, and the film subject joins us from Toronto. Her name is Malka Rosenbaum. Thank you both for joining us, Martin. By the way, did I pronounce your last name correctly? Almost. It's pretty good. It's Martin Himmel. Himmel. Pardon me, sir. Thank you so much uh, for, okay. for dealing with my my guess. I realized as we went to air, I don't know how to pronounce Martin's name, so I'll just take a stab at it. So, uh, Martin, we'll start with you. What prompted you to tackle this subject and turn it into a film called Secrets of Survival? Well, I've, uh, in the course of my uh, career as a foreign correspondent and I've covered a great deal of conflict in the Middle East, in uh, Israel, the West Bank, Gaza, Lebanon, Iraq, and the Balkans, uh, Romania, many places. And one of the most common motifs that uh, I've experienced in many years in covering these conflicts is that um, uh, when there are conflicts going on, people, ordinary people, not combatants, but just ordinary people, though combatants as well, have to make very difficult decisions sometimes that affect who lives, who dies, uh, all from a good place to try to survive a war. Uh, and those decisions are sometimes very hard for people to understand who are not in those conflicts because we're not forced to take such extreme measures. Um, and then when the conflicts end, those that survive often have a very compelling need to go on with their life, build families or rebuild families, have children, and part of that rebuilding process is obviously to ensure that uh, the children will never have to experience what they had experienced in this conflict. And by doing that, coming from a very a place to actually try to protect the children, they they keep things away from them. And sometimes those those facts are major facts, like a sibling that lived or who are your parents, etc. And um, and uh, I, I thought that this would have been a good premise to make a film, and that's how it got started. Martin, it's, Martin, it's not uncommon. It's uh, Greg speaking, by the way, for 
veterans of war, those that have experienced war, to never talk about the worst things that they have seen. And so that that's not necessarily keeping a secret. That is just keeping a certain part of their lives and, and their experiences in wartime to themselves. But we're talking about in this documentary a big piece of your family history that is altered by either keeping or burying the truth. Fair to say? Yes, but I think it's coming, I, while the, the effect can be devastating and hard, I think that it comes from a place, and this, in this particular documentary, it came from people who wanted to shield their children that were born after the war, to give them a life that isn't plagued by the terrible decisions that they had to make many, many years ago. Uh, but inevitably, they can cause repercussions, as they did in this documentary. Now, we'll... Uh, turn now to Malka, Malka Rosenbaum, who is a Torontonian. And Malka, you believed that your uh, immediate family uh, survived the Holocaust, but then later learned something different, and then it sounds like you later learned something different. So rather than me try to tell your story, maybe can you tell us a little bit about your story and your involvement in Secrets of Survival? Well, uh, I was approached by Martin Himmel, uh, who had uh, met my son, um, and it was, you know, a chance encounter that Martin had discussed with my son his idea for a new documentary. Uh, And my son already, you know, had picked up on the fact that I had only learned at the age of 19 that my parents had had a child that was given up before they went into hiding in Stashev, the town that where my mother was born, uh, in 19, they went into hiding in 1942. I had no idea about this. They had never mentioned it, nor had I even heard any whispering among other family members. I- I'm talking about uh, distant cousins. I think one of the problems uh, in what you were asking Martin about was that I was an only child. And had I had another sibling... I, I wonder whether my parents would have been as reluctant and um, uh, to tell me that there was another sibling that had passed away because I was bearing this information on my own, and they maybe wondered what, how I would accept that or how I would feel about that, you know, if I would share in their sorrow. Of course, in my situation, my parents' age came into... Uh, a lot of my discomfort growing up because I always worried about them passing away early. They really were old enough to be my grandparents. Um, they were much older when they had me and moved, uh, um, well, moved to Canada uh, after about three years being in, in Poland, in uh, Israel, and in Paris. Um, so... I think that their reluctance, for example, wasn't really because they couldn't talk about it as much as it was that they didn't know how I would accept that or how I would feel because I was that only child. I think those stories get buried and they get uh, left behind. They get locked away out of protection. Martin, I couldn't agree with you more. And Malka, I think you're absolutely right. But I want to ask you, what was it like when you discovered that this uh, this story or this whisper maybe that your aunt had, had planted, the seed she'd planted, this idea that perhaps you had a sister? What, what 
what was your reaction and, and what was your immediate uh, form of action once you learned of this possibility? Well, my mother did tell me uh, during a conversation because we did have a, a discussion on how difficult I was going to university, how difficult it was for me to really live up to my parents' dreams that were unfulfilled, their own dreams, and wanting the best for me. And I was, I felt guilty that I may not be able to, to give them all that. Um, I don't doubt now for a minute that I did, I was successful in making them happy. Uh, what my aunt in Israel had planted was that there was a possibility that this sister could still be alive. Um, my parents, once they had told me, felt confirmed in the fact that they felt that this child did die. And we had stayed in Poland, or my parents had stayed in Poland for five years after the war. Most people had left by 46 or 47. Now, I'm, I'm not giving uh, historical uh, fact. I don't really know. But I know for them that where most of their uh, peers and, and friends and uh, maybe distant relatives had left, they stayed on. And part of that, I felt, was to make sure that they left no stone unturned in trying to find this child. Uh, and so I think that they felt um, that there was closure. Uh, I didn't, once I found out, because there are so many, you know, maybe my parents wanted to be uh, naive. Uh, there were so many different people that could have taken this child and had a life with this child as their own. And my parents may never have known. So at the beginning that I found out that this child could be alive, I, you know, it, it, it was, um, you know, there was a lot of guilt on my part that my parents never had that life with that child, that I never had a sister with that child. How would it be if that child was found? We would be from two different backgrounds. Would there be a connection aside from the fact that we were born to the same parents? Would, there, would, we, would that be enough of a bond? So it was, it was um, there were a lot of questions. You know, I didn't feel that it, it was totally wonderful. I felt, what are we going to do with that information if she would be found alive? Valka Rosenbaum is a Torontonian. Uh, she is the subject, one of the subjects of a documentary called Secrets of Survival, uh, which was made by filmmaker Martin Himmel, also a Canadian foreign correspondent. And Malka, your story is uh, a true rags-to-riches story, isn't it? It is. Can you tell us it about is. that? Well, my parents really came to uh, Israel and to Paris and to Canada with nothing. My father, who was a very educated person in Poland, ended up having to have uh, grocery stores that really he rented. We lived above the store in basically two rooms. They were basically the two bedrooms that we lived in. We did not have an area that we could entertain anybody. So we lived a very sheltered life from any social interaction with people. My parents worked from 7 in the morning till 11 at night. I didn't, as I said, I didn't have siblings, so I didn't have peers or, or children my own age uh, with whom to interact aside from going to school. And um, we had a very difficult time making ends meet. However, my parents did um, try with 
whatever means they had to offer me the opportunities to play piano, to to go skating, to go swimming, whether those uh, lessons at that time um, were a lot of money for them or not. They made sure that I was able to experience um, things that a lot of other children were able to experience. And I know it took a toll on them. I mean, thinking back, I can think of my parents always wearing the same clothing. And for myself, I had a cousin whose father was a, a tailor, and he made her her clothing. Uh, they were not well-to-do as well, but I waited for that for her to grow her things so that I could uh, have them. And I remember thinking once she had a skirt that uh, was quite beautiful, hoping that she wouldn't wear it out. So we came from, I came from very uh, meager beginnings. It happened that my husband and I met in university. We both did not come from, uh, his parents maybe did better. His father was a tailor, but it certainly wasn't a life that was luxurious. Uh, They made ends meet. Um, We both went to university and my husband became a lawyer. He ended up becoming a partner in a real estate uh, development um, um, company, he put his he used his law practice really to uh, um, become a businessman of sorts, and the economy was thriving, and we ended up economically doing well. So at the end, and where I am now, uh, life is good as far as um, my means. Uh, comparatively to where I came from. It's it's not really believable. Martin Himmel is the filmmaker. We're talking about this documentary. It premieres on Sunday on the Documentary Channel, Secrets of Survival. Martin, it would be easier to list the television stations you haven't worked for, the networks that you haven't worked for over the years as a foreign correspondent, uh, CTV, Global TV, Fox, you've produced for ABC News, and if you've been watching uh, TV news for any amount of time over the last 30 years or so, you will recognize Martin's name and his face. Why are these stories so important, not only to those that are just trying to discover the truth and get to the bottom of these stories, Martin, why are they important for you to share with us? I think it's important because uh, when people see major events happening throughout the world, whether it's the terrible uh, carnage that we're seeing in Syria, like we are seeing today with these terrible chemical weapons used on little children, or uh, uh, Syrian refugees that come to Canada, or what's going on in Iraq, or in many other countries of the world, it's often statistics, it's geopolitics, it's what the Russians are doing, what the Americans are doing. But what we all easily forget is that there are many, many countless of people with little lives and very precious lives that are just trying to understand, to survive and to get by. And uh, they get forgotten very often in these things, but they live with the consequences and their children and places and whole societies live with the consequences for generations. And it's, it's important to take that into into account and to always remember it because that's maybe one of the ways of avoiding many more wars in the future because after all when a war comes it just shatters countless countless lives wherever they are and i remember when i grew up uh, i'm i'm a bit younger than malka but i'm of the same generation i grew up 
in Toronto and grew up in a Jewish community. Half of my friends were Holocaust, second, or children of Holocaust survivors like Malka. And it's not an easy situation to grow up in that situation. I didn't understand it at the time because I was blessed by the fact that I never was, you know, my family was never involved or hurt in the war. Uh, and I couldn't, and there was always something strange and different. And only after I became a foreign correspondent and actually got to conflicts and saw this terrible trauma it does to people did I say, ah, now I understand all of them. And now I really understand where they came from. And, and, and that was also a driving force in making this film. Martin Himmel is the Canadian filmmaker. He's a foreign correspondent. He is the man behind the new film, Secrets of Survival, which debuts Sunday, April 9th, on the eve of Passover on Documentary Channel. And we were also joined by Torontonian Malka Rosenbaum. She is the subject of Secrets of Survival. We spoke with Martin, by the way, in Tel Aviv. Martin and Malka, thank you so much for joining us. Again, it's called Secrets of Survival. Debuts Sunday night at 8 o'clock, Winnipeg time on Documentary Channel. Fairly delightful day. Haven't been outside for a while, but, you know, if you're in one place for a while, that sun certainly is warm. You can tell that things are about to heat up tomorrow, 12. Friday, mostly sunny and 15. Keep it locked here for your latest forecast, 680 CGOB traffic and weather together uh, starting in about 15 minutes time. I'm Greg, he's Brett. We were just having a conversation about a documentary that is debuting Sunday on Documentary Channel. It's debuting on the eve of Passover. It's called Secrets of Survival, and it was made by Canadian filmmaker and foreign correspondent Martin Himmel, who, as Greg was pointing out, has uh, quite an extensive list of credits here. If I look it up, he's worked as a foreign correspondent and war correspondent for 25 years for CTV, Global TV, Fox, ABC, uh, he's appeared on PBS, Bloomberg, NBC, Sky, BBC, CNN, I could go on and on. That's not an exaggeration. And so we spoke with him and we spoke with one of the subjects of this documentary. Her name was Malka Rosenbaum and her story has to do with, she believed her immediate family, uh, Polish Jews, survived the Nazi-driven Holocaust when she's 20 years old, she accidentally discovers that she had an older sister named Esther, whom her parents were unable to safely care for, gave to a genteel family in the forests of Poland. But she was later presumed dead. 35 years after that, Malka's aunt stuns her by saying Esther might in fact have survived the war and still be alive. So that's one of the stories. Greg, there is a second story that we didn't have time to get to and ask Martin about. Yeah, in Germany, small town in Germany, Jürgen Olaf can never forget the moment his own life changed forever. At 21 and excited about getting married, he discovers at the Frankfurt City Registry that his father is not who he thought he was, uh, Eric Olaf, a World War II German vet, but his dad is actually an American soldier who had passed through his mother's town in the period immediately following the German surrender. Well, that story, within the story, when he confronts his mother, changes and he gets to the truth. It's an absolutely fascinating tale of getting to the truth of what your family roots are and the family stories. And in this gentleman's case, exactly who his dad was. Not even born, not even in the same country. So I'm really looking forward to this documentary, this idea of discovering who we are. It seems to be so important to so many of us, if not all of us, to get an accurate depiction 
of our family histories. It's become an obsession for an awful lot of people. That's why you see the proliferation of sites like Ancestry and, and others that are offering you the opportunity to build your family tree. So again, that debuts Sunday, this Sunday on Documentary Channel at 8 p.m. And again, it'll replay at midnight. Global News coming up at 3 o'clock on 680 CJOB. Hi there, would you like to sing a song with us? Manamana. Isn't that the name of a song? I think so. Manamana. Manamana? Manamana. This is the original version of this. I didn't know how am I gonna how am I gonna search this? So I just put in M-A-N-A, M-A-N-A, and there it is. Manamana. This is the original 1969 version from Sesame Street. Sesame Street, it was appeared. I didn't know that. Okay. I knew Manamana since I was a little kid, and anybody who is of a certain age, say 45 or older, knows Manamana. (laughs) Okay, so why are we playing this? Well, because Stephen Colbert united the Muppets with Sean Spicer. Last night, one of the White House press secretary's go-to responses when speaking about the Trump administration is that it's doing a phenomenal job. It's become such a common refrain that Stephen Colbert said it to music and not just any music, but of course it had to be done to Muppet music. I think the president has done a phenomenal job. We're doing a phenomenal job of staffing the government. I think the relationship with Mexico is phenomenal. Phenomenal, 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 phenomenal. 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 Trump makes an appearance there. <laughs> it's stuff like that that has pushed Stephen Colbert to the top of the late night heap for the first time. Apparently, the the only time the late show has defeated the tonight show in I don't know, the last I can't remember what we say we'll say like the last ten years or twenty years was due to uh there was no Tonight Show. It was it was the the gap between Conan O'Brien and Jay Leno. That's, That's right. That's the only time. Yeah, T- Tonight Show has always been the winner, and then over the last couple of months, it's been Colbert because of this political environment that has allowed him to shine. Because they tried to water Colbert down. They really did. There's no question about it. They tried to make him sort of an everyman, and he's not. He's Stephen Colbert. His humor is best when it's politically charged. That's not to say he can't do other things, but he has been given the green light to do his thing thanks to Donald Trump. So in many ways, he has Donald Trump to thank for his rating success. CBS, of course, is loving it because they finally have knocked The Tonight Show off the perch. We're not minding it at Global TV either. You can see The Late Show with Stephen Colbert at 11 o'clock on Global here in Winnipeg and throughout Manitoba. Did you you sing this as a kid? I probably did. I remember when I 
there was a commercial that we aired on this radio station for, I think it was a car commercial, that used this tune. And I was wondering, what what is that? So I looked up the video, and it, it was one of those things that rang a bell, but not really. So maybe I was just a wee lad. So it hadn't really formed a memory. You you missed the the height of the phenomena. Phenomena. I loved the Muppet Show when I was a kid, so I would imagine that I saw it. I watched tons of Sesame Street. They used to re- rehash all sorts of old gags. I mean, this is from '69. You say I was born '77, so clearly I didn't see the see it when it originally aired. Yeah, because I think Sesame Street launched June of 1969, like basically a, a week. After I was born, oh wow! Sesame Street came on the air. So, like I always say, Sesame Street is as old as I am, yeah, in a very literal sense. And the most recognizable tune for me when I was a kid from Sesame Street was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. That's the one that that is instantly recognizable. Was that, that I believe it was a pinball game. That is absolutely correct. And then it would. Uh, go through all these different areas and different fancy drawings would occur. And I can remember we were talking, I don't know why we were talking about uh, the Muppets before, but, or Sesame Street, but one of our loyal listeners said, my favorite was the guy with the 10 chocolate cakes and he'd fall <laughs> down the stairs. Oh, oh, oh. And I was, I think I was at the end a lot of times, whatever the number of the day was. Anyway, thank you to Stephen Colbert for that walk down memory lane, combining the old with the new Spicer with the Muppets. Only Colbert could do such a thing. It is 313 on 680 CJOB. After traffic and weather together, we are going to give away our final set of Age of Electric tickets. Stand by for your cue to call. Clear tonight, down to minus 3. Sunny tomorrow with a high of 12. Friday, mostly sunny with a high of 15. But looking ahead to the weekend, Saturday looks like cloudy with a very good chance of showers. Still warm with a high of 16, but then Sunday a little bit cooler. Mix of sun and cloud with a high of 7. And that's where we are right now. 7 degrees at 680 CJOB. Traffic and weather together for the Club Region Event Center. Presenting Who's Bad? The ultimate Michael Jackson experience. Should I add things? April 28th. (laughs) Tickets available through Ticketmaster. Shaman. (laughs) Visit casinos at winnipeg.com for details. Or as Weird Al would say, ham on, ham on whole wheat. Ham on whole wheat. When he did his version of Michael Jackson's bad. We got, uh, speaking of music, we got stuff to give away. One more pair of tickets to give away for tomorrow night's show. Tomorrow night at Nashville's Canadians Transcona. Age of Electric. So the first thing we need to tell you is that if you can't come get the tickets by tomorrow afternoon at 4.30, then don't, please don't call because we want to make sure that these tickets end up with somebody who can go to the show. And that's, that's no, we're not aiming that at yesterday's winner who is unsure if he can make it. Jason, if you're listening, hopefully you can get down here. I know that. We're, you're, we're pulling for you, but if you know you can't make it, and you absolutely can't make it, don't call in the meantime. <laughs> Here's today's question. What is the nickname of lead singer Todd Kearns? Love it. 
204-780-6868 is the number to call. Gave you a little bit of a hint there, too. What is the nickname of lead singer Todd Kearns? 204-780-6868. While we are waiting for our winner... Todd Kearns will be in studio right here tomorrow, 2 o'clock. Oh, Did you know that? No. Now you know. That's cool. You must be pumped about that. I can't wait. I love seeing Todd and really one of my uh, favorite, can I admit this right now before yes. he gets here? Man crush. Really? Todd Kearns, yeah. Well, what is the history of that? Well, just the, his music, first of all, but I met him for the first time about three years ago, and he is as polite a person as I've ever met. Okay. He carries himself in such a way that it's, you know, he's one of those guys that, yeah, we could be buddies, but he is just genuinely a nice person and carries himself a way that uh, I think a lot more people who are famous should carry themselves. Is, uh, you know, he's from Saskatchewan, right? I know, and we'll have that we'll have that conference confrontation tomorrow. Because I know you don't really like Saskatchewan all that. And much. I've qualified that. You know the reason why that is because it's become that I've. Well, I'm actually jealous of Saskatchewan <laughs> and all the great things they do there, and all the wonderful people that come out of Saskatchewan. Some of my favorite people, as it turn out, is are from Saskatchewan. In the end of it all, Bob Irving included, maybe right at the top of that list. Todd Kearns would be in the top 10 for sure. People from Saskatchewan that I adore. I, I was just uh, wanted to see what uh, your reaction to Did that I do would okay? Be. Yep. No, no, no stick out that all right. Diplomatic response for sure. Is Todd the, uh, the member from Age of Electric who is part of Took? That is correct. So it's him and uh, Brent Fitz. Brent Fitz, you got it. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I guess their connection came from when, because uh, Brent was has been working with Slash for, for a, a long while, time. But Todd was asked to to join that as well. So that must be where they're... Well, we'll find out tomorrow. We'll you ask them We're going to ask them all about that stuff <laughs> and talk about uh, uh, Winnipeg South, Jet Central, down in Las Vegas, uh, Kearns and uh, Fitzy, uh, huge, huge Jets fans. Really? Oh, yeah. And they wear it well, proud. Fitz, yeah, Fitz, I know for certain. Absolutely. I remember when there was a, there was an event over at Canada's Polo Park uh, a few years ago, and I was filling in on, our, on the drive in the afternoon, and I was live on location at this event for Bobby Hull, which was sort of awkward because picture, if you will, I don't know, not, not a, a giant room, but a fairly sized room. And I'm off to the right in the back corner and I'm doing my show live, which was great leading up to the event. But then the event starts and there are speeches. <laughs> and I, I know so the story. I, I had to come on. It's 321, Brett McGarry live on 680 CJOB, time for traffic and weather together. Because <laughs> it was a quiet room. People were delivering their speeches. Yeah. Their speeches, part of the, the whole event was a speaking engagement, yeah? So I'm having to do interviews and talks and to give traffic. So, But Brent Fitz was one of my guests that they had lined up. So it was my first introduction to who's Brent Fitz. He turns out he's this really neat musician and he has this gigantic uh, pride and, and passion for the Winnipeg Jets. He was so excited to meet Bobby Hall that day and get his jersey signed. Should just quickly mention Tyler Wozniak. Way to go, Tyler. Is going to see Age of Electric tomorrow night at Nashville's Canadiens Transcona. He correctly answered the name, the question, what is the nickname of lead singer Todd Kearns? His nickname is Dammit. It's Todd Dammit Kearns. And they said because his name 
sounds like God. So we'll leave it at that. 322 at 680 CJOB. Traffic, weather, sports, all up next. Even after many years of study, biologists are unable to agree on the number of races of the Canada goose. The largest, as well as one of the smallest geese native to North America, are within the Canada goose category, marked by black neck and head and prominent white cheek patch. Is there anything better than a Hinterlands video to remind yourself you're Canadian? Yeah. I know. It's fantastic. <laughs> I love it. I love it too. Uh, Jeff Braun doesn't love it. Your cohort, your co-host <laughs> of the Couch Potatoes and of course our news person here at 680 CGB Monday through Friday and outstanding contributor to the Shadow Davis show. If you don't listen to Shadow Show, you should listen to it. Not because Shadow's great, because Jeff is outstanding. His little insults and his quips about everything from laundry to Canada geese are hilarious. We have two Canada geese who have been inhabiting this area around our studio here at Polo Park for the past, I want to say, three to four years. They come back every year, the same two geese, and they they often get quite territorial. There's these planters across the, the street, sort of in the parking lot where there's the Bed Bath & Beyond and Marshalls. And they set up shop in one of those to, to nest. And they, so the, the mother would be in the nest and the dad, I guess, would sort of roam the perimeter. And he would hiss at you if you got anywhere close. Same two geese. So Jeff Braun is freaked out by these things. One of them was just sitting in the parking lot this morning at 345 when he got here. <laughs> so naturally, Jeff was scared because he's a huge scaredy cat. He is a huge uh, fraidy cat, scaredy cat, however you phrase it. And, well, if we want to talk about birds, I know who to call. We call Sherry Versluce of the Preferred Perch. And the first question for you, Sherry, how territorial are Canada geese or Canadian geese? Well, they're pretty territorial, absolutely, um, especially when they have selected a spot that they're going to consider nesting in. They want to make sure everybody understands that that is their little spot. Now, I've heard that geese pick a specific nesting site and they return there year after year. Is this accurate or is this lore? No, this is as long as they are successful. Like if something ever happened where there was a you know a problem where their nest was was um, destroyed or if their chicks perhaps were killed, then reasons like that, they in most cases would not return. But otherwise, they absolutely do. Here's one. I mean, our particular location is kind of in uh, a concrete jungle, so to speak. I mean, we have the creek just across the street, but not a lot around. Like, I, would, I wouldn't picture this spot as a place where these two geese decide to come back every year. What is it about a particular location that that brings these birds back to the same spot year after year? You know what, it's usually the actual spot that they're building the nest. It, it doesn't necessarily mean the habitat around them is good. Like I know one problem area is around the taxation center in uh, off of Lajemode Boulevard. Um, the meridians between the lanes there have these big round concrete planters and the geese love to build their nests on top of these planters because they're kind of raised up and off the ground and there's drainage in them. But of course they're in between four lanes of traffic there. So it is absolutely not an ideal spot, but the, the nesting, the planter is what's ideal for them. 
so it is interesting sometimes where they do choose to go because their surroundings in some cases are very dangerous and not ideal but it's more of where they can build their perfect nest. Well, our text message machine is open at 7806868 the strangest place that you've seen a pair of Canada geese nest. I know we had one in the parking lot at New Flyer a, a pair of geese they were there every single year in this really odd spot and we used to have to cordon off with police caution tape so nobody would park too close to the geese because the mama goose would get pretty violent if you got too close and so as a you know a preventive measure we would we would tape off parts of the parking lot so you wouldn't park so so close Jeff Braun wanted to know he's like well how long can these geese live anywhere because they can't be along that much or around that much longer well he'll, he'll be surprised to hear that Geese can live anywhere from 10 to 24 years. Oh, like, great. You know, most of them live at least 15 to 20. Um, and they will, they don't start pairing up till they're about two to three years of age. And then they start their nesting. They mate for life. But uh, yes, if, if all goes well, they'll be returning to that spot for a good 15 years. That's great. Jeff will be thrilled to learn that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Here's one. Are, why are Canada geese so cranky? They're, they're, they're always so unfriendly. They're always hissing at you. You know, that's a good question because they ask the same thing about us humans. I'm quite sure of that. <laughs> because, you know, we're the ones always getting in their way and taking away all their habitat. So I think they've got a pretty good reason these days to be pretty cranky. But it, a lot of it is, of course, just lack of habitat and building these nests in ridiculous places. And, you know, and then they they're want people to know to stay away. Is it also just uh, because they're protecting their young? Because I think, for example, like there's a, there are a couple of golf holes at Kingswood and LaSalle where there are always geese and there are always ducks. And the geese, if you go anywhere near them, will actually take a run at you. Yes. Whereas the ducks, they will waddle over. They'll come right up to us on the green or a tee box or whatever because they want us to feed them. Yes. Yeah, no, geese, they definitely have that hissing behavior and they'll dart at you and, you know, stretch their wings and show their size. And it's it's just part of their behavior. They are very bonded pairs. Like, they absolutely mate for life and are very protective of each other and their nesting space. So it is just their their dedication to themselves, to the pair, and to their nesting that they are that. Uh, and they only usually breed once per summer, unlike ducks sometimes we'll breed a couple times hmm. so it's a very protective situation for them so and you know it's it's the baby it takes about 28 days for the eggs to hatch once once they've laid them and as soon as they lay them the parents lead them straight to a water source which again in most cases is not an ideal path to get to the water right and within 24 hours of that those little goslings can actually dive almost 40 feet in the water, like 40 feet underwater. They're an amazing creature without doubt. And just let alone what you've just shared with us, the amount of distance and where they go to winter is fascinating as well, right, Sherry? Yeah, they fly about 1,500 miles a day during migration, and they'll fly anywhere from 40 to 70 miles per hour, um, depending on the kind of tailwinds that they have. And they mainly go, you know, obviously to the southern states, to Florida and areas like that. And that V formation that we're all familiar with, is it's a very, you'll often hear them very vocal during those V formations. And that is because they're constantly communicating of who's going to be switching up to take the lead spot. Because the head bird 
kind of breaks the headwind for the rest of the V formation to make it easier for them to fly. So they're constantly communicating of whose turn it is to come next so that none of them ever get fatigued while they're flying. Wintering in Florida, you see? Bird brains, you always say that is a compliment, and you have just highlighted it right there, Sherry. Yeah, I'm going to where the weather's good. Yeah, they're they're (laughs) no dummies. Sherry, thanks for this. We appreciate your time. As always, we'll come and see at the Preferred Perch, 1604 St. Mary's Road. I know you're always there, so just come and say hi. Take care, Sherry. Have a great day. Thanks for this. (laughs) Take care. Bye-bye. Oh, before we do anything else, Greg, we have something Jeff Fortier is signaling. Hold that up again, Jeff. Have a look. Oh, yeah, we can do that. Okay, let's do it. Let's give away two tickets to Winstock Friday night, taking place at Cowboys Windsor Park Inn. It's a fundraiser for the Movement Center. We had an absolutely terrific conversation with uh, the Movement Center and Alan Jacks, who is the founder, 13th annual Winstock. And uh, we want to send you 780-6868. Fifth caller now gets two tickets. They're valued at $40 each. So just... Forewarning you, you got to bring cash when you come. We're going to give you the tickets, but it's a fundraiser, and we want you to spend lots of money when you're there. So we'd love to send you to to Winstock on Friday night. What is this? My locals pick up a camera tower um, to nest under. They've been here for six years now. There's a picture at 780-6868. Strangest place for nesting geese, Costco parking lot on grass about three feet by three feet. 347 on 680 CJOB. Traffic, weather, and we'll hear from Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham to tee up the news. All up next. Jeff, just before our next element, just want to quickly read this text message. Canada geese are little more than feathered rats. They have become a menace for people, vehicles, and buildings because of their territorial nature and their poop. Can't stand them. Got a winner, Greg, for the Winstock tickets. Just quickly congratulate Ed Freeman. Congratulations, Thank you, Ed. Ed. Look forward to meeting you on Friday night. Bring lots of dough, lots of money. My co, what are we, auctioneers on Friday night, you're going to be judging the bands. I'm going to be doing my best to introduce the bands, and together we're going to raise a ton of money. We will indeed. Uh, again, I'm out of my comfort zone being a judge. Just... <laughs> yeah, because you're so non-judgy and everything. <laughs> no, I'm just thinking. <laughs> now, you're calling you've got... him judgmental? All right, so you've got judging musical. pants you've got... mine? <laughs> You've got the musical icons of Howard Manshine and Tom McGorin. Can we roll? Can we roll the one of these things is not like the other theme from Sesame Street here? I've been listening to all three of you guys since I was a baby, so uh, yeah, I'm not like the. Wow, he called you you. judgmental and old all within inside a minute. Well, (laughs) and we're not going to get into your adult diaper phase here either. Oh, I'm not even close to that. But anyway, oh, I thought it was because you were you were a baby. Oh, I understand now. Sorry, sometimes it does fly. This is a little bit of Friday night preview. Like, we love each other. You're testing the material. We absolutely love each other. That's right. Uh, Todd Kearns, one male crush. The other is uh, Richard Cloutier. I'm looking at our Twitter feed right now. Chevrier Boulevard from our friend Matt Cardi. What an absolute mess this street is. Are you going to talk to Matt? Yes, we will. Okay, why? Why are we going to talk to Matt? Yes, why are you speaking to him? I can see why, but tell our listeners why. Well, you just said it was an absolute... (laughs) It's all a quiz. It's all a quiz. You did say it was an absolute mess. That's kind of implied. Well, you can can expand on that, can't you, Julie? Sure. Do you want me to write it for you, too? Wow. Holy. 
Wow. CAA uh, Worst Roads competition continues. And so far, it leads the pack inside the city as the worst road. And Matt went for a drive. Oh, he did. It is, it is absolutely horrible. Mm-hmm. Horrible. What else are you working on? Um, well, we will have a fun little contest, Lambert versus Lambert, as we give away Miranda Lambert tickets. We've got some uh, trivia, and you have to tell us, get three out of five right, if it is trivia about Amanda Lambert, or, or sorry, Miranda Lambert, or Adam Lambert, nice. and just combine their names. Nice. well done. That is <laughs> so creative. that'll be fun, and they will tell you in their own words whether you're right or not, whether it's real or whether You've it's not. You've enlisted the help of both of these superstars. Yes. She's really stepping up her game. She certainly am. So we'll have that. Uh, also, I know we'll talk a little bit about that Pepsi ad and how Pepsi may have got it wrong, but find out how KD is getting it right. Craft Dinner? Craft Dinner. Craft Dinner always gets it right. Well, they stepped up their game big time and got some help from an autistic boy in uh, in BC. Nice. And, and just took this to a whole new level. So that's really cool, too. And the latest on the flood fight throughout the afternoon here on 680 CJOB. Richard Cluche, Julie Buckingham, thank you so much. The news from 4 until 7 on 680 CJOB. Give me a hug on the way. Our time, Greg is making amends. So on that note... I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg Mackling. Jeff Fortier and Master Control. The news is up next on 680 CJOB.